0: First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't generate amusing holiday cards, but it will personalize career paths for your people and let you know which suppliers are best so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real world results. That's SAP Business AI. If all you have is this incredible huge vision, and I've met many entrepreneurs who can sell this incredible huge vision, But if you don't have the execution, it's it's simply hallucination. So you need both. And and that's why it's so hard to to build a successful venture-scale business, because you do need that wild uh, vision. But you also need to get out of bed and roll your sleeves up and, and do that critical execution work every single day to get to each step, the many, many steps on the journey.
1: I'm Christine Lagorio Chafkin, and you're listening to What I Know from Inc. Magazine. Today's episode: Vision without execution is just hallucination. Despite that, a lot of us are at home a lot more hours these days. Few are more relaxed. <laughs> or sleeping any better, which is a problem our guest today has been working on solving since long before the pandemic. He's Michael Acton-Smith, co-founder and co-CEO of Calm. If you haven't heard of Calm, it was founded in 2012, but really started to blow up over the past few years after earning the honor of Apple's App of the Year in 2017. On the Calm app, you can do things like guided meditation or be soothed to bed using one of their sleep stories, which are sometimes narrated by celebrities like this one.
0: Hello, I'm Harry Styles. And tonight, I'm going to help you drift off to sleep with some soothing words and calming music.
1: Michael is a serial entrepreneur, having founded multiple companies prior to Calm, including Firebox.com and Mind Candy. Like many of the entrepreneurs we've talked to, his passion for entrepreneurship can be traced back to his youth.
0: I was one of those kids that was always getting up to harebrained entrepreneurial ideas. I was trying to wash the neighbors' cars, whether they liked it or not, or sell them apples from their tree. I had a computer game magazine in school. Um, so lots of, uh, different, uh, antics I got up to, but nothing really in the kind of sleep or or meditation or or mindfulness space. So, um, yeah, karma is a little different from my early ventures. (laughs)
1: <laughs> right. And um, was it just out of college when when you started your first real company um, You know that didn't involve washing people's cars? <laughs>
0: it was, yes. My first grown-up company was um, about nine months out of uh, college when I finished. And uh, my good friend, Tom Boardman, who I met at university, um, we both got sensible jobs after college, but we both had this itch to create our own business. And we were in a a shop and we saw this very exciting book this is in the late 90s and it was called um uh business on the internet and it was huge and we were so enthralled and excited by it that that was kind of the, the first spark that uh, helped us come up with our initial idea, which was a company called Hotbox, which sold toys and gadgets and games online, which is quite a, a revolutionary idea at the time. Amazon had only just started getting going, Google was at the very early stages. So everyone we spoke to thought we were completely mad. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> yeah, we had to sort of figure out a lot of stuff from scratch.
1: So it was just, it was sort of a toy store, but online?
0: Yes. Yeah. Do you remember Sharper Image and and Brookstone? Yeah. It was it was that kind of idea. We thought most of the people online at this time were male, and they were probably a bit like us. We thought interested in gadgets and gizmos and toys and just quirky ideas. So uh, so we thought it would be fun to um, create an online shop uh, selling these things, and we didn't have much money. So. Um, we didn't have any stock. So when people would order one of our products, uh, we would then go and find a manufacturer and buy them one at a time and then ship them out to the, the end user. And again, beco- before this is before Amazon, so people didn't expect their deliveries next day. Uh, it would take weeks and weeks. And uh, we couldn't figure out how to do credit card processing online. So uh, we used to ask people to write down their credit card details and fax them to us, uh, which was a one- <laughs> Wonderfully high friction process. I'm, I'm surprised we had any orders at all. It was quite a quite a difficult time.
1: Right. Um, and and how did that company go? Like, did you have any customers from the start?
0: Not really. We we had uh, we got about one order a week, uh, which wasn't really sustainable. We had this wonderful friend Matt Schoen from from college who would um, order from us using uh, fake names to make us to to make us feel like we had a proper business. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we we couldn't we didn't really have strangers ordering for us. And then eventually, a few months in, we did start to get our first few orders, and then it started very slowly to grow. But it was a long, hard slog. Um, and the tipping point for that business actually was when we invented our own product instead of selling other people's products this wonderful light bulb moment where we realized if we made our own things they'd be unique and we could have bigger margins and um we created this chess set made of shot glasses uh which sounds a little bit bizarre we called it the thinking person's drinking game and you filled up the pieces with alcohol, red wine against white wine, or whiskey against vodka, and you move the pieces as normal. But every time you captured a piece, you had to drink it. So the better you were doing on the board, the more drunk you were getting. And there was this weird handicap system, and um, very unusual idea. But it, it caught fire, and we got lots of publicity for it. And uh, and that was, as I say, the kind of tipping point for that business taking off.
1: That's fantastic. Uh, we'll fast forward to calm in a minute. But I can't help but ask you about this other business you created that had a similarly like whimsical um, aesthetic to it and was very kind of remarkably Willy Wonka esque. Um, I believe it was called perplex city. Is that right?
0: Yes, yeah. Perplex City was this uh, very unusual online game, uh, online and offline. Uh, it was called an alternate reality game, where we buried some treasure somewhere in the world, and um, we announced there was going to be a two hundred thousand dollar award for the first person that found it. And then we released clues across all sorts of different media, from classified ads in newspapers to crop circles to airplanes with banners behind them, um, actors at live events. It was it was really bizarre and wonderful. <laughs> it was kind oh. of um based on the movie The Game. I don't know if you've seen yeah, that of, David.
1: Of that course, movie. of course. So it, it was it was amazing. One of the most
0: creative things I've ever worked on, but um one of the most commercially challenging things because we had a very passionate audience, but it was quite small and we just couldn't figure out how to to turn it into a scalable venture um venture scale business. So we All had right. to put that one on hold.
1: How long did that run and how much did it end up costing?
0: Well, we raised about $10 million for it. So um, uh, I think we did a great job selling the story and getting investors excited that this was gonna be the next big breakthrough in entertainment. And I think we'd have stood a better chance in the era of the iPhone, but it was before then. Um, And it was very expensive to to build and create. It it was probably about a three year journey in total before we decided this this just isn't working. And and we took the very painful decision to, to pivot
1: yeah sure was your i mean was your initial plan there to, to advertise or get i mean how would you how would you make money off of it
0: well we created these puzzle cards and there were uh 256 i think in, in every um series of the game and you'd buy the puzzle cards in packs of six in shops so it was a bit like pokemon some of the cards were much rarer than others and um the cards had puzzles that you'd solve on them but then there was a grand puzzle that if you put all the cards together, they would spell out bigger mysteries and give you passwords and uh, URLs to visit. So we monetized uh, that way through selling the cards, but we just couldn't quite sell enough to, to make it sustainable.
1: Yeah, I imagine. Now, your next big thing that which was out of the same group, if I'm correct, uh, was a profitable endeavor. Is that right?
0: Yes. So we, we did a very unusual pivot. Uh, we went <laughs> to the board, board and said this, this business you backed is not working. But We think the next big thing could be online monsters, and uh, we want to create this world for children called Moshi Monsters. And the board, to their credit, were like, okay, fair enough, we've got a little less than a million dollars left in the bank, let's give this one last roll of the dice. And so we created this flash website where kids could adopt their own little monster. And um, it was a bit like Tamagotchi, and that took a while. It was at least a year and a half of, of kind of scratching our heads and tweaking and iterating until that hit a tipping point and then just took off like crazy. Kids absolutely loved it. Um, we built a really big business uh, off the back of that.
1: That's fantastic. Um, and it's still going, Right.
0: It is yeah that company has had all sorts of uh, ups and downs on the, the entrepreneurial roller coaster so it grew to about 80 million uh, users we sold hundreds of millions of dollars worth of physical products toys books magazines we made a movie and a music album but <laughs> the kids at the kids entertainment space is quite fast moving you can be red hot one minute and then not the next and so that was a very stressful, difficult time. We had to let hundreds of our employees go, uh, revenues collapsed. Um, and then we had several years of, of really struggling with that company. But there's a, a brilliant new management team in running it. And uh, it's now called Moshi Sleep. And um, the world of Moshi with all the characters and, and the, the universe is, is helping kids relax and unwind and, and sleep at night. So it's, it's doing really well.
1: How neat. Okay, but that is like an insane career trajectory already and also seems like such a fast and furious uh, path to founding a meditation app. (laughs) Tell me about the roots of calm and how calm began.
0: Well, I think after all those ups and downs and and, uh, roundabouts and roller coasters, I think I needed to do something a little calmer and more meditative. So I think I was I was ready for the next adventure. And I was living in Soho in London with a, a couple of um, good buddies, uh, my friend Malcolm and, and Alex. And uh, Alex and I would play video games in the evening on the sofa and we'd talk about all sorts of different business ideas. And he mentioned one day that there was this domain name that was uh, potentially available to buy. Uh, and I said, what is it? And he said, it's calm.com. And I said, wow, what a cool domain name. Four letters, uh, universally loved and understood word. And I said, how much is it going to cost us to buy it? And he said, about a million pounds. So we were like, oh, that's never going to work. Uh, and um, and then about a year later, we had the opportunity to, to buy it uh, for a much lower price. And we decided to to go for it. And um, it was the most expensive thing we'd ever bought, but we felt there could be something here. What if we could build a brand to help the world reduce our anxiety, to reduce stress, to help people sleep better? Um, It just felt like an amazing opportunity. We didn't really have an idea how we were gonna go about it, but we felt it was worth writing a check for about $150,000 to buy this domain. And and that was the the very sort of first uh, seed of, of Calm.
1: Uh, that's so neat. The concept came first. And then how, why create it in the United States and why follow the path that you did to to creating it?
0: Well, Alex uh, had been meditating for a lot longer than, than I had. He he'd uh, discovered this incredible practice when he was a teenager. So he felt uh, that would be an amazing place to start building an app uh, to help people learn to meditate. And we both felt California would be a better place to launch a business like this. In the UK, we felt people would be more receptive, and we felt it would be easier to raise financing. I think some of the early people we spoke to about this idea rolled their ideas, or would tell us, you know, good luck with your non-profits, <laughs> um, or that meditation is just weird and woo-woo. Uh, yeah. You'll never, you'll never crack it. Um, but we thought. California would be better. So Alex moved over first and and got things going, and then I joined uh, a little bit later. And as entrepreneurs, Silicon Valley felt like the the, the kind of the crucible of, of entrepreneurship, the place you go where you really want to kind of prove your metal. And so we thought, what a what a fun adventure it would be to to see if we could build something uh, there, where some of the best entrepreneurs in the world have have come.
1: Sure. And how did you find your first fans? You know, you built, tell me a little bit about the very first product you had and who started listening to it.
0: Well, we, you know, like most entrepreneurs, we started in a very scrappy way. Uh, We created a few um, basic uh, meditations uh, with a a friend of ours and we found a voice actor, actress in Australia and um, just cobbled it together. And Nothing really happened. It was it was a really like most early stage businesses a really hard slog. Uh, we didn't really know how to get uh, to connect with potential users. The, the download numbers were very low, um, and so yeah, it it took quite a while to kind of reach uh, a tipping point. I think a, a crucial moment was when we were emailed out of the blue by a lady called Tamara Levitt, who um, said she was a fan of what we were doing and she was a, a, a a lifelong meditator and a teacher and and we connected and really clicked. And so she started creating programs for us. And I think those really kind of struck a chord with an audience. And so little by little, we started to, uh, to grow from there.
1: Yeah. I mean, as you mentioned, when you were first floating the idea, you were met with some skepticism. Um, I think in that space, there's always a lot of skepticism and meditations classically been done um, privately or in person with with an expert. Right. There's that digital divide of like it feels a little uncanny valley to let tech come into something so personal for for people or to let it become a thing on your device rather than a thing with someone you trust. How did you yes. manage to bridge that? Was it Tamara or was it something else conceptual or was it in the zeitgeist?
0: It's a good question because, you know, this, this ancient practice has been around for thousands of years. And, and the best way to learn is with a, another human being, a, a teacher who is there with you in the same physical space. But that doesn't scale. And so we wanted to see could we find a way of distilling um, the, the core Teaching and make it simpler and more accessible, and uh, more relatable to millions of people around the world. And so we felt that the phone and an app was the best way to do that. And it is a little strange because phones have been stressing us all out. You know, <laughs> we're surrounded yeah. by screens. So, so the irony isn't lost on us that we're trying to calm people down by using the device that's stressing them out. But I think the, <laughs> the, the, the way we think about that is that. Technology uh, and our devices—they're not the, the the culprit here. They they are merely tools. And with any tool, it's how we use it that matters. Uh, these devices can be incredibly additive to our lives and, and bring so much joy. Um, but if we use them wrong and if we use them mindlessly, they can stress us out and, and cause us a lot of um, a lot of challenge. So. That is why uh, this practice is, is so valuable, because it helps you become more mindful in how you use your devices and how you relate to other people and, and how you live your life. Um, and it is something people carry with them pretty much everywhere. And it's so simple just to put on your headphones or even just press play and, and listen to the content.
1: Yeah, you can kind of feel when your phone is stressing you out and switch back to something that won't immediately. Uh, that's, that's kind of fascinating. Um, now, I know that gamification is sort of an outdated buzzword in, uh, you know, the startup space. But, but did learnings from your previous companies inform any of the building of Calm?
0: Yes, a little bit. And, you know, we didn't want to overly gamify Calm. I think that might sort of defeat the purpose. But there are definitely elements of gamification that that when used Thoughtfully, can create a better experience for your audience and help them develop this healthy habit. So, you know, one example might be streaks. Um, as humans, we, we love completing things and, and we love the idea of uh, streaks and consistency. So, we, we help our audience and encourage them to come back to calm every day. Uh, meditating for 10 minutes every day is far better than sitting down once a week and trying to cram in a, a, a mammoth session. So, that was one area. Another is um, being very thoughtful about how we approach marketing and performance marketing in particular and, and user acquisition. Uh, we have a, an absolutely world-class team at Calm, uh, led by uh, Dan Wang, who has has helped us um, and the team helped us build that side of the business and helped us grow and, and scale very, very thoughtfully and, and rapidly. And that's something that, you know, all gaming and companies understand extremely well, um, LTV and, and, uh, Customer acquisition cost and and so forth. So those have been kind of two and two important elements brought over from the world of gaming.
1: Ah, that's that's interesting. I wasn't thinking about that. Um, but what's been your your best customer acquisition tool?
0: We had tremendous momentum early on organically, and mm-hmm. you know I think all the best businesses are at their kernel, an incredible product. Marketing can only take you so far. I think the magic happens when you combine uh, exceptional marketing with an extraordinary product. So we grew to about 8 million downloads without spending anything on marketing, partially because we would have loved to spend money on marketing, but we we couldn't get investors to, to come on board and, and take a chance on the business. So we kind of had to cut our costs to the bone and um, and just grow organically and think of viral ideas. Um, so yeah, so in answer to the question, I think building an amazing product, making it as easy as possible for people to share and talk about it. And I think we were quite lucky as well in that we were launched and running and, and one of the leaders in this space when society kind of tipped and changed the way it thought about mental health. And and that was an extraordinary moment around sort of 2017, where mental health went from being something no one really talked about. It was kind of swept under the carpet to something everybody seemingly is is now talking about. And people recognize how incredibly important it is fueled by politicians and sports stars and musicians. Uh, And uh, I think that tipping point, um, when we were sort of surfing the, this wave um, and then holding on for dear life uh, with the tremendous growth afterwards has been, has been pretty extraordinary.
1: Sure, and a huge part of that growth in the zeitgeist was also um, either mirrored by or perhaps due to the fact that you've always had um, a very unusual situation in growing your business, which is that you've always had a direct competitor doing a very similar thing. Um, You know, Headspace launched around the same time a little bit before you guys did. And to have two startups competing for a more than billion dollar industry, and I'm sure many customers who try or use both of them is a super rare situation. I'd love for you to take us inside what it's been like to navigate that and live that.
0: Yes, yes. Yeah. So they are a, uh, a brilliant company. They did start a little bit ahead of us. And uh, the two companies now are, are by far the, the, the leaders in this category. Um, and both apps you know meditation is such a a valuable skill there's not one size fits all and so i think for anyone wanting to develop this this very valuable practice uh it's important to find a way of learning and a voice and a a practice that, that works for you um so one thing i would say about calm we are a little bit different i think we we think of Calm a little bit broader in terms of the brand that we're building. It's not just meditation and mindfulness, although that's very important. Calm has a huge uh, sleep component. Uh, We have a a very, very large uh, music element. Uh, We're creating wisdom programs for a whole host of different other types of uh, audio programs to help you lead a happier and healthier life. And then we have big ambitions to broaden beyond the digital. You know, could a brand like this live as a, a physical magazine or a line of clothing or a chain of hotels or a, a tropical island? Um, you know, there's almost no end to, to how far we could take this if, if we're thoughtful about uh, extending the brand. And we often talk talk about building calm into the Nike of the mind. And and we have huge respect for what Nike have done. You know, they're not selling sneakers, they're selling inspiration, they're selling transformation. And they built this extraordinary business over the last half century around physical fitness. And we think the next enormous wave in society is around mental fitness. And uh, we think this isn't just a, a billion dollar opportunity. We think this is a uh, you know it's we're playing in the four trillion dollar health and wellness category so um yeah we think there's huge growth ahead and, and a lot of exciting opportunity
1: yeah sure I want to get into that more in a moment um but first i I wanted to look at that the competition with headspace a little bit more um, because I think there was this fascinating moment where you said you know everything sort of started blowing up in in 2017 2018 um, and that was right at the time when you won Apple's app of the Year award is that right?
0: Yes. Yeah, that was uh, another kind of uh, critical moment for the business.
1: Yeah. And and I I wanted you to tell us a little bit about that because it seemed like until then Headspace sort of had the lead and then all of a sudden the next year, 2018, your revenue really started to climb. Your subscription numbers really started to climb. Um, What was that turning point like for you?
0: Well, it, it was a huge honor. And, you know, we worked very closely with with Apple. And there are, I think at the time we won, there was over 2 million apps in the App Store. So to be crowned the number one was was pretty extraordinary. Um, and we were a tiny team then. You know, we were, um, gosh, barely two dozen people. Um, so amazing. And, and we had a huge influx of, of new uh downloads and i think it changed the way uh we were the press talked about us and we had a lot of marketing partners approach us so it was it was a really important moment but it wasn't the silver bullet you know building a business and for all the entrepreneurs listening i think everyone knows there's, there's not one single thing uh it, it there's a whole host of things as entrepreneurs you're constantly chipping away you're rolling those dice you're taking bets and some things work most things don't work and every now and then something does work and then that's what you focus on and you do more of and you just keep placing these bets so for us it was it was many many different things that came together um a, a war of inches that uh helped us kind of close the gap between headspace and uh, and build what, what we believe is, is now the, the market leader and again now going beyond just meditation and mindfulness and playing in the the audio space, which I think is a fascinating category. You know, Spotify have moved from being a music company to being an audio company. Audible are doing incredibly well. Uh, people have said this is the year of the ear, uh, the golden age of audio. Such uh, uh, There's so much uh, amazing things we can listen to through podcasts. And um, I think we're barely scratching the surface of, of new formats and new ideas of, of helping people Um, entertaining them, changing their lives through magical audio content.
1: When we come back, I'll ask Michael about the future of Calm. But first, a quick break.
0: First, the bad news.
1: So, Michael, let's talk a little bit more about the state of Calm today. You, um, you have uh, this future of audio you're working on. You have partnerships with corporations to provide Calm for employees. You have partnerships with healthcare companies. Um, where, where's the strongest revenue stream for you now, and um, and what are you looking for in the future?
0: Well, the main revenue stream is is still subscription, and you know I've been a an entrepreneur and built many different businesses and it's by far my favorite type of business if, if you create something of value and you keep adding to it um it's a great for the company and it's great for your audience uh as well we've seen the success of spotify and, and netflix and amazon prime and uh, we want calm to be up there with those kind of giants as as well helping create health and wellness content for, for everybody So 99% of our revenue comes from our subscription, and um, I think it will always be our our dominant source going forward. But we recently launched a a big new division within Calm. We've talked about it for years, um, but we finally got a fantastic team developing it, and that is B2B. And we've seen a lot of inbound increase uh, in the last six to 12 months from companies and healthcare providers wanting to provide calm to their employees and their covered lives um, because work can be stressful and uh, wellness at work has, has been this tremendously fast growing area again, just a few years ago, the idea of a CEO signing off on sort of meditation or mindfulness training or sleep programs for their employees would have seemed very strange. And now it's almost become table stakes uh, to attract the best employees, to retain them, and to ensure employees are healthy and happy and resilient and, and stress managed at, at work. So that's been a, a big, big growth area. And then into the future, I think we'll have other revenue streams from uh, the physical products that, that I've talked about. You know. Could we create some ourselves potentially? Will we work with our partners and create licensed products uh, possibly? Um, so that's uh, a little bit down the line.
1: Great. Um, and and what about the the celebrity partnerships? I am uh, seeing a lot of headlines about Harry Styles helping uh, <laughs> helping you sleep lately. <laughs>
0: yes. Have you have you listened to Harry's story?
1: I have not, but I, oh. I am looking forward to it.
0: <laughs> I highly recommend it. It's it's fantastic. It's called Dream With Me. And uh, Harry, with his distinctive British accent, takes you on a 30-minute journey. Uh, it's a very soothing lullaby. Uh, and um, it was incredible. It was so popular that his fans um, broke the calm app uh, for many hours. There were so many of them um, downloading and, and trying to access it when it went live a couple of days ago. So... Um, it's been a huge, huge success. And, and we recognized a couple of years ago, the, 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 kind of the opportunity to work with celebrities and folks that have big audiences to, um, to create content within Calm. And the way we think about it is we don't want to just write a check and, and do a traditional celebrity endorsement. Uh, we have an acronym called ICE, which stands for I for investment. So we like that the celebrities to have a, a stake in Calm um, to, to invest themselves. Um, the C is for content. We want them to actually create something unique, which, which lives within the app. And thirdly, um, the E is for endorsement. We want them to actually be fans of, of Calm and, and use it. And, you know, Matthew McConaughey has been a great example. He's talked about us all over the place saying how much he loves it. LeBron James uses Calm every day to help with his sleep. Um, Harry Styles has talked about how important his mental health is to him and his, his fans. So um, I think this has been a real magic formula that uh, we're going to continue uh, uh, developing
1: fantastic and what about um what about wellness within your own company um i feel like you know we, last time we talked several months ago we were we were talking about how the company does its own meditation sessions and how um you know the, the mental health is very valued within calm.com the company um but but now in the age of COVID, uh, how are you maintaining any sort of, um, I don't know, that that sort of collective mental health or individual mental health of your own employees um, during this this insane time? It's
0: uh, it's a big challenge for us and, and everybody out there. I think, you know, we are living through extraordinary times. It, re- it really is a, an incredible moment in history. Um, and so, we didn't really know what was going to happen back in March when we we sent everyone home and uh, uh, worked remotely. Uh, I think trying to look on the the positive side of things, I think calm is, is a is a rare business that um, is valuable for people during these times when mental health is is even more important and people are struggling to sleep and and more anxious. So we've been working very hard to make sure our, our App is available. Um, we created a resource at calm.com forward slash together where we put a lot of our content that's behind the paywall out for free uh, to help people um, during these stressful times. And then with our own employees, just doing our very best, you know, it, it is a delicate balance. We are an incredibly ambitious business. Um, one of our values is is relentless. We do want to, to build one of the, the most valuable and meaningful companies in the world, but at the same time, we don't want to burn people out. Uh, we don't want our own employees um, stressed and, and run ragged. So, we try and ensure people take breaks. We we gave everyone a, a mental health uh, day off um, recently. Um, we talked to the team uh, about kind of managing their own stress and, and sleep and, and look after that as best we can. And I think we've learned, and I think many other companies are as well that, and I've learned as an individual, that trying to cram, you know, work 16 hours a day, not taking breaks, not sleeping properly, not looking after your health is only a very, very short term thing. And it does a lot of long term damage. So getting that right balance is, is very important.
1: Yeah. What's been the most challenging um, thing for you since March um, in leading and, and managing this team um, of folks who are probably increasingly far flung?
0: yes it, there's there's been a whole host of things i think we've all had to get very good at at uh, these new online tools you know we used zoom a fair bit before uh covid about 25% of our team are remote but now we're 100% remote so just figuring out new protocols and and ways of working um Uh, we have, um, I personally have had to get used to working on a different time zone. I'm back in Europe at the moment, but most of the team is in California. So, um, the mornings I spend kind of thinking and, um, doodling and doing exercises and catching up on emails. And then my day begins about 4 PM when California wakes up. So it's kind of turned upside down, which has taken a little bit of, (laughs) of getting used to. Um, and I think every, everyone is, is just doing their best and, and trying to figure out what works for them. Um, you know, some people have uh, people at home there looking after and, and caring, whether that's parents or, or children. Some people don't have access to green spaces or gardens. So we're trying to be as, as thoughtful and, and uh, respectful as possible to everyone's different uh, working scenarios.
1: Yeah. Are there any? um, Do you have any tips for other other business owners or managers, and on how to give people the flexibility they need, or how to provide any sort of benefits for them um, in this in this time where there's maybe not necessarily a foreseeable um, solution in in terms of getting everyone back to the office? Um, How can people work better um, when they're so far flung?
0: Yes, well, well, I think a great benefit is to buy calm for for your team.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, Okay. <laughs> Killing.
0: Killing. Sorry, I'm only only joking. There are many other um mental fitness apps out there as well, uh, but I I think um, joking aside, I think that's a, a relatively light and, and relatively cost-effective way of, of looking after your team, um, ensuring that they are uh, looking after their their mental health. Um, I think another is is as I say, just being thoughtful and understanding. That everyone's situation is, is different. And I think before Corona, if, if I'd have if someone had said to me, you know, the whole team are going to be working remotely, I, I, I and a lot of other entrepreneurs would have been very nervous at that because you, you know, you don't really know what's going to happen. But I've just been blown away by my team, and I think many of my entrepreneurial friends have been as well that people are, are working even more thoughtfully and we're even more productive as as a team. You know, people don't have to commute anymore. Um, there's no more shoulder taps uh, from colleagues. You may get other shoulder taps at home, but <laughs> so <laughs> there, there are there are many pros of, of a complete remote workforce. And there are companies that have been doing this for, for years who have been, you know, swearing by the benefits. And I, I think the penny is dropping for, for many different folks. One, one other tip I'll mention, um, I heard Matt Mullenweg, Uh, from Automatic talk about this recently, where he said in in an all remote world, you can lose the context that you get where everyone is just sending kind of digital um, communication back and forth. And he encouraged something they call API, not the the, the usual API, but um, uh, API uh, standing for assume positive intent. When you get a message, just assume. Don't think it's someone being passive aggressive or second guess. Just assume what they're saying is is meant in a positive way. And I think that's a really valuable way for a whole team to kind of uh, gel and um, avoid conflict
1: what possible yeah that's a kind of good uh, life uh, <laughs> philosophy as well in terms of dealing very with other humans <laughs> <laughs> great um so let's let's go back a little bit to the early days of calm'm I'm, I'm curious um you know in those early few years when you were just trying to get any kind of audience trying to get it off the ground trying to compete with headspace what um what did you take from that in terms of um you know kind of what what is was your biggest challenge and what did you take away from from that um, in terms of learning, whether it's how to be a leader, how to manage people, or how to simply grow a business in a stronger fashion.
0: Yes, the, those early days were, were the classic um, sort of struggle, hustle, um, hacking, trying things that don't scale, being very, very open-minded and experimental and, and having an, an awful lot of resilience. Um, and I'm sure there are a lot of people listening who are going through something similar. You know, you if you believe in a big idea, if, if you think the world is going to change in a certain way, but it hasn't yet, I mean, that's so powerful. And, and you can put up with many, many years of kind of dead ends and, and missteps uh, before Things click, and so that's what we went with with calm. We knew we just we had so much conviction that this was going to shift and was going to be a big opportunity. We were willing to put up with uh, a lot of, of struggle. Um, I think one of the biggest challenges for us was because we were so early, it was very difficult to raise financing. We 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 managed to to cobble together some angel rounds, and we're forever grateful for the folks that, that took a bet on us. But we really struggled to raise a Series A for for many many years, um, and. Uh, So that was tough. And I I think uh, part of the blame is is on us. I, I don't think we were telling a good enough story. And I think this is very important for anyone listening. How do you Capture what you're doing in in story format. That is the most powerful way of of connecting with with another human being. And I think we were telling more the story of building uh, a meditation company. And that, you know, maybe that's a billion dollar opportunity in, in the US, which is interesting, but not that exciting. So investors weren't willing to make the bet. I think we should have told the story of... I don't think we talked about building the Nike of the mind early enough or, or building um, this mental fitness company playing in the $4 trillion health and wellness category. That suddenly got people a lot more intrigued and excited, um, and that made it easier to raise money a little bit later on.
1: Interesting, um, but I, I've heard other entrepreneurs say, like, don't take your idea to its extreme at the beginning. But perhaps it is important to take that that extreme idea and at least learn how to tell the story of it.
0: Well, it's you know, it, I, again, there's no silver bullets here. It, it kind of depends on what stage you're at, and 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 I think you as an entrepreneur will have your big north star and your huge vision, but you've got to be practical about how you do that. So you do have to have all of your kind of local wins you have to be very good at one one thing first crack that then you move on to the next thing knowing that there's a, a bigger picture to crack in total so it's uh, it's a delicate dance you do to to eventually get there
1: Right. And it it kind of brings up this idea of like, what is the truth of what we're working on? Right? Like, are we working just today on this baby step? Or are we constantly keeping this giant North Star of, let's be say, you know, the Nike of the mind? Um, How do you how do you kind of prioritize how you're thinking day to day in those early days?
0: Yeah it's it's a very important question because if if all you have is this incredible huge vision and I've met many entrepreneurs who can sell this incredible huge vision but if you don't have the execution it's it's simply hallucination so you need both and and that's why it's so hard to to build a successful venture scale business because you do need that wild uh, vision but you also need to get out of bed and roll your sleeves up and and do that critical execution work every single day to get to each step the many many steps on the journey
1: so while keeping that big vision in mind um how day-to-day do you stay focused and how do you keep your team focused on say uh you know a small thing just coding the next um next portion of your app when when it's so tempting to be just enthralled with with your your giant plans for the future
0: Yes, I, I think you have to be very uh, careful about this as an entrepreneur, especially when, when a business starts to, to take off because there are so many shiny objects to, to chase, speeches to give, new projects to launch, travel to, to um, uh, to to go on. Uh, but I think you have to be very disciplined about what you're trying to, to build and, and focus on those next steps. And as I mentioned earlier, this this idea of placing small bets, I think that's a, a really good way of, of thinking about it. How can you, um, similar to sort of the, the minimal viable product thinking in terms of creating a whole startup, if you think about that on an individual level, all the different things you want to, to test out, will this new content you're launching resonate? Will this new, Um, marketing idea resonate and and just doing them and executing and not overthinking just putting them out there in the wild looking at the data and then doing more if it works and and doing less if it doesn't and that needs to be rinsed and repeated thousands and thousands and thousands of times before a a company hits product market fit and then scales from there
1: right because you don't want your big vision to kind of exclude the the potential for a b testing or for experimentation
0: no, you you can hold that big vision um and know where you're heading but don't be so rigidly stuck on it that it doesn't allow you the flexibility and the freedom on the day-to-day basis to try different things. If you look at the history of a lot of successful companies, many of them uh, ended up going after a a different big vision because they they were open-minded and learned as they went that their original thesis didn't quite make sense. But because they were making so many bets and being so experimental, they were able to discover the clues uh, to connect the dots to to find a new big vision
1: such as digital monsters.
0: <laughs> well there, there we go the, the but, uh, you know if if you look at um Nintendo I think that company yeah. started out as a playing card company and Nokia started out making Wellington boots and and there are many many different examples.
1: Yeah and with your with your um business partners are you the wild vision guy and is is he the hard work guy or how does that balance go? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think. I mean, Alex might give a different answer, but but I I think we have uh, we're very similar and. Um, we both have big, big vision. Uh, We both have known each other for, you know, well over a decade and we're co-CEOs, which is rare, but it's it's built on a really strong foundation of respect and and trust. And um, I'm probably a little bit more on the kind of the brand and the creative and the content side of things. Alex is a little bit more on the the product and and the engineering and the the operations side, but there's huge crossover between us. And um, I think having two co-CEOs, CEOs that work in this way, we believe makes us, you know, twice as effective as, as having one CEO and it's it's working uh, so far so so good.
1: Yeah. Did Alex work on your previous company with you as well?
0: We um we, we worked on a lot of projects uh, that if we had more time, I'd tell you all the, sure. the kind of, uh, bonkers ideas we came up with. <laughs> Many quirky viral ideas and games, and um, he he helped with some of the Moshi music ideas. Uh, but this is the first business we've kind of launched uh,
1: together. Uh, great. And what advice would you give to someone starting out with a partner saying, you know, who's who says, you know, listen, I've, I've got this business partner, I want to make sure that we we always get along, we are friends. But how do we work together in the most productive way? And how do we make sure that this thing is sustainable um, between us as well as as, as a company?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a tricky question. I know Y Combinator has has a lot of thoughts uh, on this. i, I I run a few different businesses and I, I definitely prefer having a, a co-founder. And I think it's um, it's it's valuable in so many different ways. You 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 know, you can share the extraordinary highs together, you can pick each up pick each other up during the lows. And there's no easy way to, to answer this other than just getting in the trenches together and, and working together. Um, again, Alex and I had been friends for many, many years before we launched this business. So we had a lot of clarity about whether we could work together. Uh, I think it's a lot harder if it's two co-founders that are just coming together. Um, but to answer the question, I, I'd encourage folks to you know, maybe work before launching a business together and you know, creating your equity and raising money and, and really getting tightly married like that. Maybe work on a three-month project um, and uh, and see how you click and see if you are kind of like-minded enough to, to do something big together. That may be one way to kind of test into it or start together, but be a little bit loose about um, the kind of uh, the agreement you're going to have and, and uh, the terms and, and before you bring on investors, just to make sure uh, you two can really sync
1: yeah, just hold off a little bit before you sign your name and blood on it, exactly. on anything with the money involved. Great. So, so, Michael, what advice would you would you give to your younger self um, before you started any companies? What would what do you wish you would have known back then?
0: Wow, well, that's a that's a tricky one. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's a whole host of things. One thing I have found incredibly valuable, um, and I would encourage my younger self to to do more of, is is to read, and to to watch documentaries and listen to great. Uh, TED Talks and and podcasts, because I think that is such a valuable shortcut to um, wisdom and and learning. Hearing from other entrepreneurs who've been there on that journey and the mistakes they've made and the successes they had, it's it's so valuable. And so I I definitely encourage uh, a lot of time being uh, spent on that. Um, that has been one of the, the secret sources that, that I found. And I, I think if you look at most successful entrepreneurs, they, they say something similar. They say that kind of their, their reading and their kind of um, research has been hugely helpful in, um, in building their businesses
1: yeah and and did you ever have mentors um, when you were starting out or along the way? I mean, I, th- I feel like some people use their um, their contacts in a similar way t- as a learning tool um, the same way you could you know get that out of a TED talk or out of a podcast or a book.
0: Yes, yeah, I've been quite lucky with some of the investors I've had who have have been very helpful. Um, giving advice when when needed. Um, a family friend called Larry, who, who helped support and, and invest in, in my first business. Uh, a, a Brit, uh, an entrepreneur in England called Tom Teichman, who invested in Firebox. And then he said to me, you know I'll invest in anything you do in the future. And he backed Moshi, um, my next business. And, and he's always on the end of a, a phone call or a text uh, whenever I need advice. So, so yes, um, a few different mentors over the years that have, have been really helpful.
1: Well, great. Michael, thank you so much for joining us today. Michael Acton-Smith, the co-founder and co-CEO of Calm.
0: Thank you. I really enjoyed it.
1: After speaking with Michael, I'm struck by a couple of things he said. First, that even for a digital team making a digital product, remote work is hard, especially when it comes to communication styles. Adopting a theory for it, to ask everyone not just to be mindful in their communications, but to assume positive intent in others, is a plain smart idea. But moreover, what I found fascinating was Michael's big thoughts about how to balance your North Star idea for changing the world with the daily need to take small actions to get there. Balancing those things, the massive and the minuscule, takes a delicate dance. Part of it is storytelling and selling your big impossible idea. And to pursue it simultaneously, you need to have your feet firmly planted every morning and take a million small steps that seem infinitely disconnected from that hazy big vision of a North Star. But as he said, vision without execution is just hallucination. We can all learn from that. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. Since we're just starting out, we'd love it if you could please subscribe to What I Know wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love it if you could recommend us to a friend interested in startups or entrepreneurship or even help recommend us to a lot more people by leaving your rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Your thoughts really do help other people who'd love this podcast find us. You could also drop us a note anytime at ink.com. Let us know about your crazy big vision. Also, who would you like to hear me interview next? You can also let me know on Twitter at Ligorio. Our producer, currently feeding an imaginary digital monster, is Joshua Christensen. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.